This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. I founded Indigare with the conviction that how you travel matters. My team and I seek to inspire and empower others to change their lives and mindsets through travel and to have a positive impact on the places they visit. I cannot think of anyone whose values are more aligned with mine in this regard than Jessica Nabongo. Jessica is a writer, photographer, and entrepreneur with over 14 years of experience in the travel industry. Her luxury lifestyle brand, The Catch, connects people across the world by providing small-scale artisans with a platform on which they can offer their goods to the global market. When Jessica landed in the Seychelles in 2019, she became the first black woman to visit every country in the world. As a first-generation American, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, by Ugandan parents, Jessica experienced the richness of multiculturalism from an early age and she's committed to promoting cultural awareness and an appreciation of diversity through her travels. Today, Jessica uses her platform as a black woman to make the travel space more inclusive. With The Catch, for example, and through her best-selling memoir, The Catch Me If You Can, One Woman's Journey to Every Country in the World. In her book, Jessica inspires women and people of color to travel freely, to break down stereotypes, and to challenge the pre-existing notions that people have about different countries. I'm thrilled to have Jessica here with me today to speak about her journeys, the transformative power of travel, and how we can make travel more inclusive. And stay tuned for this week's travel hack on solo travel. Share the show. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Streaming now on all podcast platforms. The journey continues. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. So, Jessica, you are the ultimate jet setter in some ways. You could be anywhere in the world right now, as far as I know. Where are you? (laughs) I'm in West Hollywood. Okay, and is that where you are based when you're not traveling? Yes, so I am between West Hollywood and Detroit. Okay, and how did you end up getting there? Because both your parents were originally from Uganda, right? Mm -hmm. And what age were you when they moved to the U.S. and and why did they move and where did they go? So my parents moved to the U.S. before I was born and my dad went to Western Michigan in the 50s and then he moved back to Uganda and him and my mom permanently settled in Detroit in 1969. So, you know, like any immigrant family, they came looking for new opportunities. And so ultimately my mother became a registered nurse and my father was a chemist. And what role did your Ugandan heritage play in your upbringing? I mean, you said you were an immigrant child, but but how important was their own background to the way you grew up? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I was born in the U.S., but as the child of immigrants, it really, I grew up in Uganda in my home. You know, when I think about Thanksgiving, it was Matoki and Benyebwa. Um, instead of macaroni and cheese. And so, you know, also we traveled to Uganda a bit when I was growing up. So I was very, very connected to the culture for sure. And I still remain incredibly connected. And 
most of my family still lives in Uganda. So yeah, it's such an inherent part of who I am. And when did you know that you had severe wanderlust? (laughs) Probably realized that after living in Japan, but I've been traveling internationally since I was four. And by the time I finished high school, I had been to eight countries. So Japan was my 10th country. Yeah, while I was I was living and working there, teaching English, and I, I only traveled to Hong Kong um, outside of Japan during that year. But after I left Japan, I traveled for nine months. And it was during that time that I started my blog, The Catch Me If You Can, prior to moving to London. So that's really, I think, where it started. Like I had been traveling, but like the the severe wanderlust, I think probably started in 2009. And that's when you started your blog. Is that when you realized that you could make travel into a career of sorts? No, not at all. Okay. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, that didn't come until six years later. You know, I never started my blog to make money. I just did it because I had a blog when I was living in Japan. I've always been a writer. And it was a way for my family to just sort of hear about my everyday life. And so when I started the blog, it was just about sharing my travels. It was never about monetizing it. And in fact, till this day, my blog is not monetized. But you've turned it into a career. So it's funny because a lot of people say that. I still say I just travel because I like traveling. It's not really my career. Like, of course, the book has come out of it. Um, Never knew I was going to write a book about travel. You know, that really came from my editor at National Geographic reaching out to ask if I wanted to write the book. But, you know, for me, I've always paid for my travel. You know, I visited 195 countries. I only had one free trip to a country, and that was South Africa. The South African Tourism Board flew me down. But outside of that, I've always paid for my travel. So it's always weird for me when people say, oh, travel is my career, because I'm like, well, I've spent so much money on this here career versus, you know, really getting paid for it. I think what it is now is that a lot of people just associate me with travel. And so the work that I do with brands is associated with me and I'm a traveler. Okay. So yeah, as you said, you didn't set out to make it your career, but in a way, your love for travel has turned into a way that you can change what you do every day, right? Yeah. And what point did you decide that you were going to visit every country in the world? So I had wanted to travel to every country in the world since my early 20s. I'm a geography nerd. And every year on my blog, I would do a countdown of how many new countries I visited. And so I always had the goal to do it by the time I was like 40 or 50. But in February 2017, I decided that I wanted to do it by my 35th birthday. And that was when I set the deadline. And I overshot it by five months, but I was still 35 when I finished. That's amazing. Okay. And so once you decided that that was the goal and that you had a a deadline, how did that change your travels? How did you, did you become more strategic about where you chose to go? Yeah. I mean, it changed everything. I was moving faster for sure, but it was a project, right? So before it was just like, oh, I'm going to go here on the weekend. And now it became, okay, I'm going here. I have to figure out how can I go to as many countries as possible in this time period. So it became like just a gigantic 
logistical nightmare um, that I had to dig into. And I mean, I, I loved a lot of it because I liked solving problems, but it was tough because I had at that point 135 countries to get to. And because I had already been to 60 countries, it was like a game of pickup. So, you know, you would have to go to a region to go to like two countries because you've been to the other six yeah. around it. And how much time are we talking at this point? I mean, you had to get to another 135 countries in how long? I ended up doing it in two and a half years. Wow. <laughs> so what's the shortest amount of time you spent anywhere? Um, so there's 11 countries where I didn't spend the night. Most of them are micro states. So like a few hours and like Liechtenstein, Andorra, places like that. Okay. And I'm always fascinated by how travel teaches us about ourselves often because we have plans, but not everything goes according to plan. So what were some of the things that surprised you in this great logistical problem that you were solving? What were some of the biggest surprises that caught you up, so to speak? So I call myself the visa whisperer, um, and I was very fortunate. So traveling, I was using an American and a Ugandan passport. So I only had to apply for 17 visas in advance, which is nothing, basically. And so there were definitely times where like, I had to get a Libyan visa and we called in the morning and they said that the visa office was closed, but like I had to get it that day. So I just went and convinced them to give it to me or like trying to get an Afghan visa in Kazakhstan. And they said no several times, but I ended up eventually walking out with the visa and my passport. So I wouldn't really say those were hurdles. Like I just had to be clever and like a kind person and figure out how to convince someone. Like I'm a good salesperson. So I figured out how to convince them to um, let me do it. The only real hurdle that I had was Syria. So Syria wasn't allowing Americans into the country at the time that I was trying to go in 2019. And they also weren't approving visas for African passport holders from apparently every country in Africa. And so I had planned on, I had my flight booked to Beirut and then I was going to go to Damascus by road. And literally it was the day before that I realized the visa wasn't coming through. And I was in Algeria, I was in Algiers. And so I had to pivot. And so I ended up buying a ticket to Tel Aviv last minute and then getting with my guide who I'd used before and we went to Golan Heights, which is an Israeli-occupied territory of Syria. And, you know, obviously it was like a nightmare. It's so crazy. I got to Tel Aviv. The ATM ate my card. It was like a weekend. I had to call the bank and convince them to have somebody come in and get my card out. This is literally the second to last country. And so everything ended up working out. And it was such a beautiful experience because we went to this territory and heard these stories from people about their life before and after the war and being completely separated and cut off from their country. And one thing my guy told me, he said, you know, I've been here hundreds of times and I've never heard these stories. And I said, why? He said, no one ever asked because he was obviously translating for me. And so to hear stories like of a man who went to visit his family during that time and his wife was pregnant and then the fence goes up, 
he didn't meet his son until his son was 40 years old. Oh my God. You know, and you hear, I heard all these stories of families being completely separated because, you know, you go there, you see the fence and you can see Syria on the other side and they're stuck in this um, little area completely away from their friends and families, just, you know, heartbreaking stories, but they're very much, they still identify as Syrian. Many of them don't speak Hebrew. The children are now speaking Hebrew, but even though it was like a logistical nightmare, it ended up turning into such a beautiful story. That's amazing. Okay. So what was the last country? If that was your second to last? Seychelles. Okay. So you went from, I imagine from Tel Aviv to the Seychelles. Oh, no. Why would I do that? That would be too easy. <laughs> I went from Tel Aviv to Amman, Jordan by road because it was substantially cheaper to fly from Amman back to the U.S. And the crazy thing was I had a drone. So I got caught up with immigration for two and a half hours because they said I couldn't take my drone. And I'm like, I'm going to the airport like my flights in five hours. Luckily, they let me out of there with my drone. But then I flew back to Detroit. Then I flew to New York and then from New York to Kenya, Kenya to Seychelles. It was crazy. So was there ever a point at which you thought you'd bitten off more than you could chew and you were going to give up or there was a country that you weren't going to get into? Yeah, October, October 2018, I definitely hit a wall and, um, well, no, that wasn't the wall. That was when I went broke. I went broke in October 2018. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I didn't have any sponsors or anything and I was just using all of my money. And so I was like, OK, I got to take time off because I need to figure this out. And a friend of mine was like, do a GoFundMe. It's like nobody's going to pay for me to travel. That was not true. Over 200 people ended up donating to my journey, which was incredible. Um, and so that allowed me to finish. But then I did hit a wall in March. I think it was March or April of 2019. And I was just tired. And I remember I was in Mali and I was FaceTiming my friend. And I was like, why am I doing this? This is country 154. So everyone's like, you're in the home stretch. I'm like, I still have 41 countries to visit. Where is the home stretch? I'm not seeing it. And, you know, I was in this marketplace and I was with a local photographer and he's telling these guys what I'm doing. And one of the guys, Dabia, he said to me, say pas pour toi, say pour nous. It's not for yeah. you, it's for us. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, and it really, and they were just so full of joy and so excited and so proud. And it really invigorated me because, you know, this journey, I, I was doing it for myself. It wasn't for social media. Before I had Instagram, I'd been to over 30 countries. And so sure, people were like sending me messages and press was picking it up, but it was still like, this is for me. But that, you know, that day in that market, it really made me understand like, oh, this is so much bigger than me. So that really helped to fuel me and get to the finish line. And of course, like my community on social media was so supportive. and so. That definitely helped me push through that block. That's amazing. You know, I interviewed someone recently who was the first person to run around the country of Qatar. He's an ultra athlete. And he said the same thing. He said, you know, I started to do this for me. I thought, mm -hmm. you know, people say, oh, they're doing it for their family. He was like, no, no, if you're real, a lot of these things you set out to do for yourself. And he said, what I realized is I was doing it for other people and they were so invested 
in the fact that I was doing this and what I was showing people in terms of being able to do something no one else has ever done. And it becomes bigger than you. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I'm still humbled. I'm still humbled when I get messages um, on social or emails saying how inspired people are. It's it's a humbling thing, but yeah, I'm I'm grateful that I could do it for so many people. That's amazing. Okay, so I have to ask, you went to some pretty crazy places. Were there moments that you were actually afraid? No. <laughs> Being honest, there there weren't. I mean, you went to you a know, lot of countries that have State Department warnings against travel. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> all 13 of the uh, do not travel countries. And I think I did like 11 or 12 of them solo. And here I am. Fine. So, <laughs> tell us about that, because I've been to a couple of them as well. And I often come back and say to people, this is so different from our media perception and our government. We've got political reasons to say don't travel to Lebanon, for instance. And yet you meet the people and they're among the most hospitable, joyous people on the planet. People would be terrified. You say, I'm going to Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya. What were your experiences like in those places? Yeah, absolutely beautiful. You know, I... I'm someone, you know, number one, I'm Ugandan, obviously, but also uh, I've studied. I studied at the London School of Economics. I studied international development. I worked for the United Nations for several years. So I have a really deep understanding of like global economic and political history. So, and I also understand like, to your point, political bias about why the U.S. wouldn't want us to go to certain places. So for me, the stories and things that I'd seen and heard didn't make me go in and feel afraid, right? I didn't have this fear of going to Iran or Afghanistan. I was just like, all right, I mean, I'm going to connect with local guides. I'm sure they'll keep me safe. I'll be fine. And I think the most important thing to remember is that no country in the world is completely safe and no country in the world is completely unsafe. You know, everywhere you go, people are living their lives. Even if people are in a war zone, people are living their everyday lives. Children are going to school, you know, people are preparing food at home. And so for me, I always wanted to find that, right? When I was in Iran, people took me, invited me into their homes, right? And so you see how the Iranian people are some of the most welcoming people in the world. It's nothing like what the U.S. would have you believe. Or in South Sudan, I remember being in touch with um, a friend connected me with someone who used to work at the embassy in Juba, the U.S. embassy. And I was like, hey, I'm coming to Juba. Do you have any recommendations for where to stay, what to eat? He's like, this is not a game. Do not come to South Sudan, da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, so no recommendations, whatever. (laughs) So he left the chat. And I ended up going to Juba and I had such a phenomenal time. I connected with some local people, spent time in a cattle camp, went to the market. And it was such an amazing experience. Very calm. We spent time on the banks of the Nile. And so for me, it's like, you're going to find what you're seeking. If you're seeking pain and misery and poverty porn and violence and all of those things, those things will find you. When you're going in and you're seeking out stories of humanity, seeing how people live, and you want to tell these people's stories with dignity, you're going to find something else. And for me, I found the beauty and humanity everywhere I went. 
So when people are like, when were you afraid? I was afraid in Miami when a cop pulled a gun on me point blank range because they thought I was breaking into my friend's house. I was afraid in Paris when I was on my way to the airport and someone tried to steal my phone. I was afraid in Rome when a taxi driver tried to kiss me on my mouth. Those are the places where I was afraid. I was never afraid in Iraq. I was never afraid in Afghanistan, never afraid in Sudan. So I hope that what people get from hearing about my journey or from my book is that I really just want people to start giving places a chance and to just think differently about places. Completely agree with you and have had similar experiences in both the good ones in places like Iran and the bad ones in places that you think are supposedly safe. No, you're exactly right. You know, did you get people who were critical of you going to places whether it was a place that we have sanctions against or um, that we have decided is politically, in, you know, we don't approve of. And how do you respond to that? Because I'm guessing we're on the same page about it being human to human cultural mm-hmm. exchange is the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, I think besides mind your business, um, I think <laughs> the biggest thing is understanding governments and people exist on two different planes, right? I'm Ugandan and I'm American. I don't want anybody associating those governments with me, right? Like I want people to think of me just as an individual human. And so it's the same way everywhere else you go, right? And like, even when you think about sanctions, Sanctions only hurt the people like you go to Venezuela, you see the economic situation in Venezuela, the elites are fine, but there's sanctions, those sanctions are only hurting the local people you go to Cuba, you meet the people, they're the ones who are being hurt. And meanwhile, the people in power, you know, they have all of these offshore accounts that they'll never be able to uncover all of them. So we're only making the people suffer. So to me, it's like you have to understand that governments and the people in a country are two different things. And in many cases, in particular dictatorships, the governments don't necessarily represent the people. You know, they they usually don't represent the majority of the people. Absolutely. So. It sounds like you probably knew some of this before you set out, but are there Mm -hmm. certain things that your journey to all of these places really changed your mind? Were there certain perceptions or stereotypes where you're like, wow, I, I really understand this better now that I've seen it with my own eyes? See, you know, I've been traveling so much for so long since I was pretty young. Um, So for me, I think also being the child of immigrants and like my parents having friends from all over, I didn't have a lot of bias. You know, of course, growing up in the US, they attempt to make you afraid of Muslim people, for example. I never really had that because I have Muslim friends. So for me, more than anything, I thought it was just an opportunity to show other people the humanity of these people, right? Like I found that in Muslim countries, I felt often treated better as a woman, right? Like I feel like there was deference that I received as a woman in a lot of ways, Uh, people, you know, stepping out of the way, helping me with things in a way that I don't necessarily get in a lot of Western countries. So 
for me, I just thought it was a great opportunity to share these stories, right? Like I traveled solo as a woman in Pakistan. Sure, I had to keep my head covered the whole time, but I only interacted with men and everyone was so nice and so welcoming. People had me in their homes. And so by being able to share my stories, I think it was just me allowing other people to change their bias versus it changing. Cause I don't think I really had those biases. Yeah. And you mentioned that you traveled alone a lot, not just in Pakistan. What do you think the benefits of traveling solo are? You have done 89 countries solo. I think the benefit is that you get a deeper cultural understanding um, because when you're traveling with other people, you're paying attention to them and you're spending more time talking to them. When you're alone, who are you talking to except the, the tour guide, the concierge, the taxi driver, anybody who will listen, anybody who will answer all of my questions. Uh, so I definitely was able to make deeper connections with local people when I was traveling alone. Yeah. And I think honestly, once you've had the pleasure of doing that. I find that even when I'm with a group, I really spend a lot of my time and encourage a lot of other people to to not talk amongst themselves, but talk with the people that we're meeting that we're never mm-hmm. going to get to spend time with other than being in that country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So you are an incredible advocate for making the travel space a more inclusive one. What does that mean to you? Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned and what you're hoping for? Yeah, I think for me, it means it's about representation, right? And I feel like all of these words are now being abused, (laughs) but people just want to see themselves everywhere. They want to see people who look like them everywhere. And it's not just race, right? It's not just gender. It's body type. It's different abilities. It's age, It's so many different things. So, you know, I say when I talk to some companies, like, what does that look like? It looks like your marketeers taking a notebook, walking outside and writing down the characteristics of every single person that they see walking down the street. All of those people want to see themselves in advertising because people are just people. You know, for example, 60% of Americans are overweight. How dare we not have more people overweight in commercials? You know what I mean? And in adverts and everything, it's like, that is normal. If you're not overweight, you're actually abnormal in the American context, but we don't even consider that, you know? So for me, inclusion just means everyone who exists in our society should exist in advertisement. That's what it is for me. And how have you seen things change over the last 14 years in the travel space? Has it become more inclusive or not so much? I mean, I think there's more writers of color for sure. And there's specific marketing towards certain groups. But to me, it's like, use the same marketing for everybody. You know what I mean? I don't like that. It's like, this is an ad for black people. This is an ad for old people. It's like, No, just like make all of the ads diverse so you don't have to target a specific audience. It's when you're in a diverse group of people that life is most interesting anyway. Mm -hmm. So you can learn something, you know? So yeah, has it changed? Sure. But it's still ridiculously Eurocentric. I mean, when I look at, I won't call names, but when I look at people's 
20 places to visit in 2023 and you still have 15 places in Europe. I'm just like, we're still doing this. This is, this is where we still are. And, you know, for me, like we have gatekeepers in the travel industry. They are magazines, they are publications, and they tell people, these are the places you should go to. The omission of places is a suggestion that you should not go to those places. And then people will make up their own reasons why, oh, well, this publication didn't mention this country. Maybe it's dangerous. When it's like, no, actually it's phenomenal. You should, you should go in spring <laughs> yeah. or whatever it is, or go in, you know, Northern hemisphere winter, it's going to be warm and gorgeous. And so for me, you know, I don't think the industry is doing enough at all. Um, because when you still look at the tour guides, like the tour operators, the writers, the people who are still running everything, there's absolutely no change. If you ask me. But, you know, I can only do what I can do. I can have these conversations. I can write a book for National Geographic. I can talk about countries that people don't often visit and some people have never heard of. And I can use my platforms to share beautiful stories from these countries, to share beautiful pictures from these countries that respect the dignity of the people living there. Yeah. Thank God you're doing it. Because, it, it, you know, it is, it's one person at a time. It's one conversation at a time. And it's the examples mm -hmm. that make a big difference. Your memoir is called The Catch mm -hmm. Me If You Can. And it became an instant bestseller. What was the inspiration behind the title? Yeah, it was my blog, which is so crazy. So um, it's The Catch Me If You Can. Because back in 2009, the movie owned the domain for catchmeifyoucan.com. So I just added the, but then it really became my moniker. You know, even back then friends called me Carmen San Diego. Every time someone would text or call me, they're like, where are you? And so it was always like, oh, catch me if you can. And that's where it came from. So when my editor, you know, we're talking about book titles and she was like, oh, well, we're going to call it the catch me if you can. I was like, can we do that? What about that other book? And they were like, yes, it's fine. We can do it. So that's where it came from. And, it, you know, even now people will see me in the streets and they'll be like, catch me if you can, or I caught you. It, you know, it's been since 2009 that people have been associating this name with me. So it's I'm so grateful that they decided to use the title. That's awesome. OK, and if you had to distill what you want readers to take away from your book, what would you say that is? I really hope that it makes people think differently about the world. I hope that people take away that most people are good and that there's beauty everywhere in the world. No better way to have that proven than by going and seeing it yourself. Mm -hmm. You started a lifestyle brand called The mm -hmm. Catch. How did that come about? And can you tell us a little bit about the artisans who are selling their work on your platform? Yeah. So I am a lover of markets. Uh, I've never met a market that I didn't love. And I truly, every time I go um, to a country, I'm like, where's the market? I used to just buy things for friends. Like I would post on Facebook, hey guys, I'm in Kenya. Anybody want anything? And so I would sort of just sell it to my friends like that. And then I was in Kenya one time and I was talking to some artisans who made brass rings and I was just talking to them about their process. And I was like, what if we design some stuff together 
you know, and then I was able to sell it because the challenge for a lot of these people living all over the world is they have these really amazing products, but if someone doesn't physically go to that specific market, they can't access it. So it's a market issue, right? And so for me, it was an opportunity for me to work with local artisans and give them access to a larger marketplace. And so um, we have jewelry that I designed made from recycled brass in Kenya. Uh, and then we have home goods that are made in Senegal. So we used to have a lot more variety, but now we're doing stuff that I'm like really curating and designing with the artisans. So it's just, it's been incredible. It's amazing. I actually, years ago, probably about 10 years ago, did exactly the same thing. I'm like you. I love not just markets, but I love finding artisans and finding things that you can't find anywhere else. And I did the similar thing. We called it the souk. We called it the mm -hmm. Indigari souk. And we would just, we would actually bring a lot of the artists and sometimes they'd send boxes to us, but otherwise we would bring them together for like a three or four day pop-up in different mm -hmm. cities around the U.S. and, and sell them in person and have people tell their stories because to me that's so much what you want is to, is to understand why people are making them, how they're making these things, what they mean, and how they are connected to the destination. So yeah, during the that. pandemic, we actually did did a couple of pop-ups, one from Rwanda and one from Kenya for exactly the same reason. So I'm thrilled. I'm so glad that you're doing this online, and I'm a, a fellow market lover and, and artisan lover. So you've been to every country. You're about 80 ahead of me. What inspires you to continue traveling even with that badge of honor? And are there certain places that you're most eager to go back to? Yeah, I, I'm a super curious person. And like, I've been to every country, but I haven't been every single place in every country. And so for me, I, I love visiting new places. I love visiting my favorites. I think I'm just a traveler, right? It's just, I've been doing it since I was four years old. So I can't even like, if I'm on the ground too long, it feels weird. So obviously COVID was a very strange time for me. And eventually I just got in a car and started driving places. But yeah, there are so many places that I still want to see. Like I've never been to the beaches of Northern Madagascar, right? I want to go see those. I just really want to get back to the Maldives because it's so incredible. <laughs> You know, I've never done guerrilla trekking, even though I'm Ugandan, I've never done that. So there's, I have a very long bucket list that I'm trying to get through. Uh, is the cover of your book in the Maldives? It is in the Maldives. That's what I was guessing. <laughs> okay, so for people who are a little more afraid of getting out there, do you have tips for, you know, how people can get started? I, I find that so often people have this curiosity about the world, but fear holds them back. I think especially if it's like about solo travel, start simple, start close to home, take a road trip two, three hours from your home, you know, and explore that place, meet some local people and kind of do that to build up your courage to like be out alone. Right. Because at the end of the day, for me to travel means just to leave your home. It doesn't mean you have to cross an international border. The U.S. is huge and dense and like culturally dense. There's so much to explore here. And it's so different around the regions. I mean, language changes, even though we're all speaking English, it is very different depending on where you are in the country. Cuisine changes, you know, the history is different and there, the art is different. There's so much to explore. So I would say start close to home to sort of build up that confidence. 
then I would say, you know, think about things that make you comfortable. Language, okay. Would you feel uncomfortable being in a country where English isn't widely spoken? If you are, then choose countries where English is widely spoken so that you feel comfortable when you get there. Um, so that's the biggest thing. I think you have to sort of assess for yourself what will make you comfortable. And then once you go and you realize, oh, this, is, this isn't so bad. This is easy. It just, it, it will continue to get easier every single time. Yeah, it's like a muscle that you're, you're building. At Indigari, we talk a lot about the traveler's mindset. And I'm curious what that means to you. I mean, to oh, me, it's flexibility. And in some ways, it's the idea that travel rewards us for being adaptable and not being too attached to specific outcomes, but instead making the most of whatever the moment is at hand. But I'd be curious your take on that. I like that. I think flexibility is important and necessary. Um, I think for me, it's about being open-minded and being humble, right? It's about recognizing this is not your country. <laughs> Whatever you do in your country, this is not that. You know, and being open to learning, being open to adjusting, right? Like if you're in a country where as a woman, you have to wear, cover your head, that's what you have to do. That's it. There's no arguing. No one cares where you're from. This is what you're doing here. So I think it's about being open-minded and being humble, you know? and not giving value judgments to things. This is good. This is bad. It's just different, you know? And so really trying to look at it that way and, and being a student, you know, don't go in trying to confirm what you think, you know, go in and ask questions, um, you know, lead with a spirit of curiosity uh, because they know more about their country than Google does. <laughs> so that would be fine. Fantastic. Now, I'd love to ask you some sort of more tactical questions because you have done an enormous amount of traveling to a lot of different places in lots of different circumstances. So when you were traveling, how did you decide which hotels to book, which restaurants to eat at? It sounds to me like you do a lot of research in advance and you rely on local advice. Mm, I do. So hotels... Here's the thing about me. I didn't stay at a lot of hostels, which is not my brand of travel. And it's obviously it's changed as I continue to get older. But like I would just have basic rules. Right. Because I had someone who was luckily helping me. So basic rules, four stars. And then on Hotels.com, it has to be at least an 8.5 in the reviews. And so we sort of went like that. And then, you know, location, you want to make sure, or for me, I like it to be in an area that's walkable because I enjoy walking. Um, so those were the considerations for hotels. Food, I do two things. One, I Google best food in whatever city. And then I cross-reference between different blogs. And then I ask local people because I'm like, where do you eat? Like, I want to go somewhere where no one is a tourist. I want to be the only yeah. tourist there. I've had that experience in a lot of places. So, um, you know, especially if you're looking for good local food, it's best to just ask the taxi driver, you know, and depending on the hotel, you know, if you're staying at like a five-star hotel, the concierge will try and send you to like the Michelin restaurants and stuff like that, which is great. Not really my thing. I'm like, I want to eat good local food. So I always ask people um, at bars, like even I was just in Boston and I asked like five people, okay, best lobster roll. 
And obviously people have differing opinions, but then one just keeps coming to the conversation. So I'm like, all right, I know where I'm going to go for the lobster roll. So it's not even something I only do abroad. It's something I do everywhere. I do it in LA. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of exactly what you're doing. It's that research, but then also getting locals' opinions. And is there something that you always keep with you on all your travels, something that you can't live without? Not really. I'm not super into material things and I lose stuff a lot. Like I just lost my noise canceling headphones. No, there's nothing. I, I always travel with like a reusable water bottle, a reusable cup. So on planes, I don't have to use the plastic cups. So that reduces my um, plastic usage all over the world. No, I'm a pretty simple girl. <laughs> okay. And so how did you, after traveling all over the world, you are now dividing your time between Detroit and L.A., it sounds like. How mm -hmm. did you pick those places as your home bases? So Detroit, I'm from Detroit. I love my city. And so that will always be home. And I own my home. The home I own is in Detroit. L.A., honestly, post-COVID, I just wanted to be closer to my friends. Not that I don't love my family. But I'm young. And so I really just wanted to move to a place where I had a lot more friends. So I spend a lot of time here just because I have community here. And that's really important to me. Fantastic. Last question. What's next on your travel wish list? Most immediately, I'm trying to convince my friends that we should go to Bali for two weeks. I haven't been to Bali since 2018. And it's a place where I just always feel so relaxed and centered and it's affordable luxury. So I'm trying to get to Bali. Sounds pretty good. And is there another book in the works? There are some books in the works. I'm like, this reminds me, I should go work on that proposal. Yeah, you know, we're um, working on a cookbook, which I think is going to be really exciting and bring like these really traditional recipes to the world in a way that has never been done. You know, we're so used to like caucho pepe and like yakitori, stuff that we can see in so many different cookbooks. The book that I am working on will be 50 recipes from 50 countries. Um, and I think many of them will never have been in a book before so it's exciting super exciting okay well keep us posted i can't wait to see that jessica thank you so much it's been a total pleasure thank you i want to thank our guest jessica nabongo for being with us today and taking the time to discuss the importance of global citizenry storytelling and exploration coming up after the break i'll be talking about my tips for solo travel Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Follow Melissa on Instagram at Indigari Founder. Travel Hacks with Melissa Biggs Bradley from, from Passport, Passport to, to Everywhere. Solo travel presents a rare opportunity to tap into yourself, to meet new people, and to follow your own interests and itineraries when traveling. The experience can be truly transformative and empowering. While I, of course, love traveling with my family and friends, I also prize the moments every year that I have time to explore on my own, as those times of being a lone discoverer have led to some of the most powerful travel memories and moments I have. That said, I know it can be nerve-wracking to be abroad in a foreign place on your own. So these tips I've learned and gleaned from other solo travelers over the years may give you more confidence and inspiration to set out on your own. First, 
plan ahead. I recommend booking your trip with a trip designer if you're able to. And it's always beneficial to start the conversation by talking about what you want to get out of the trip. Do you want to explore a city? Do you want to be in nature? Do you want to be settled in one place or hop around? A travel expert draws not just on their own experiences, but also on the backlog of trips that they've planned for others over the years. They can help you make sure you're picking a destination that checks all your boxes and is safe to navigate alone. I started my own solo travels as a high schooler living in Europe and going to different cities because they're always easy things to do on your own, from attending concerts or going to museums. But over the years, I've also had amazing solo experiences at places with built-in programming, like a spa or even a safari. Second, I suggest share your itinerary with your family, close friends, and or a hotel manager. Make sure that someone knows where you'll be staying at all times. You might even set a mutually agreeable time to check in with your family or friends at least once every 24 hours. And if you listen to my podcast with expert solo traveler Patricia Schultz, she suggests that you also have the travel buddy keep copies of your passports and credit cards in case yours get stolen. And she advises wisely that whoever you pick is someone who you will be able to reach out to at any time of day in case of an emergency. On the topic of documents, be sure to bring multiple photocopies of your passport and other important documents, as well as an extra credit card. Keep the extras and originals in different but safe places at all times. And for an extra layer of security, consider emailing an encrypted photocopy to yourself and setting up Apple Pay on your phone. Next, consider trip insurance. Protect yourself and your trip investment. You should have emergency medical insurance while traveling on your own. And be sure you have one that covers evacuation in case you need to be evacuated for any reason. Companies like TravelX require that a policy be purchased at least 14 days prior to your departure. Travel Select covers up to $50,000 in emergency medical expenses and $500,000 for emergency evacuations, but must be purchased 15 days prior to travel. Next, I suggest you always carry your hotel's business card. In case your phone dies or you don't have service, you'll still have the contact information for your home base. Next, definitely trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Remove yourself from the situation, preferably by walking next to a larger group or entering into a crowded place. And if you haven't worked up the courage to go totally solo, consider joining a group trip. If you want to see familiar faces and add more structure to your time, a group trip can be a great solution. Indigari hosts multiple group trips called Insider Journeys throughout the year. This year, we're going to Mexico City and San Miguel Allende, Guatemala, Spain, Tangier, Marrakesh, and many more. It's a great way to have consistent company and meet new people on your solo trip. To learn more about Indigari's Insider Journey opportunities, you can contact the Indigari team at insiderjourneys at indigari.com or visit our website, indigari.com backslash insiderjourneys. And finally, I should mention that another perk of solo travel that Patricia and I agree on is that being on your own seems to facilitate that special perspective or travel-inspired epiphany that is often so transformative. There's something to be said for exploring the world on your own. Navigating an unfamiliar place without any familiar people is an empowering experience. If you follow these practical tips, you'll have the peace of mind to spend more time indulging in the self-reflective parts of your solo travel. So I hope you get out there. 
Huge thank you to Jessica Nabongo for joining us today. To learn more about her adventures, check out her book at thecatchmeifyoucan.com and follow her on Instagram at Jessica Nabongo. Next week on Passport to Everywhere, I'm speaking to Patty McKillen, the mastermind behind one of my favorite properties in the south of France, Chateau Lacoste. In the meantime, I'd love to hear about your best and worst travel experiences, any travel hacks you'd like to hear me address on the show, any guests you'd like me to interview, and of course, your questions. So leave a message at 646-535-7297 or send a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it so we'll be discovered by more listeners. Thank you for listening to the show and speak to you soon. The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms. And anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I-N-D-A-G-A-R-E. Send us your questions about travel. Passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646-535-7297. This has been Passport to Everywhere. everywhere.